two, one. Hello, Monica. Hello, Adam. How are you? Wonderful. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I was listening to your lecture on dual process theory just a couple hours ago, and could you tell my listeners a little bit about it? Yes, dual process theory is, is very important uh, for understanding how the brain works and also how um, we could make an artificial intelligence. And um, it's it's been discussed for a long time. It's been discussed as far back as, as uh, 1892 by, by William James and others. Uh, but recently it got a lot of attention with Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, which is mostly about dual process theory. Many others have spoken about it um, before J uh, before Kahneman did. But the main idea is that brains they use two disparate modes of thinking. They use uh, both intuitive understanding and logical reasoning, and they're very different. And we can look at some of the differences between those two. Uh, uh, we know that, well, according to Dan, uh, Kahneman's book, understanding is fast and reasoning is slow. Um, it's also that's because the understanding is parallel and the reasoning is a step-by-step -step process because you have to go through things one at a time to reason your way through a problem. Understanding is intuitive. From an artificial intelligence point of view, it's important because we have, it seems, for the most part, been working with the reasoning part for 60 years. Um, and um, we have ignored the understanding part. Nobody has thought about it. And the reason we haven't thought about it is because it is subconscious. We don't see it. We don't think it's important. We only see the reasoning part. And therefore, artificial intelligence from the get-go has been about how to reason about stuff. Yes. And some of the really difficult problems, or at least what researchers initially thought would be difficult, like solving an integral equation or beating a chess master have been, well, fairly simple compared exactly. to teaching a robot how to speak English in exactly. a natural language. Yes, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a strange kind of, kind of angle on things that, that uh, well, this all ties into the fact that we can't see, we can't introspect, we can't see how we understand. Um, there's, it is not really surprising though that we were attacking the AI issue the wrong way because um, we are, we, we like to be like scientific about things and uh, science is this strategy of dealing with complicated problems um, largely by taking them apart into smaller problems and attacking them and so on. Uh, this has worked really well for many, many different um, problems, and it takes a lot of um, effort to get out of that mindset, if you will, that this is how we do everything. All our education is basically aimed at uh, solving all the problems we encounter by creating models of Models is a key concept that I uh, would like to elaborate on a little bit. So the model is basically a simplification of reality uh, to something that's simple enough that we can reason about it. So we take a rich reality, we throw away that which we think, watch, we throw away that which we think is irrelevant, and we are left with a small core of stuff, which is basically um, the model 
of some aspect of reality, some small part of it. And we have to do that in order to be able to like feed it into our computers or compute on it or even just to think about it and make equations and, and computer models and scientific models and naive models and other kinds of models that we make. Um, and uh, reasoning, all reasoning requires that we use these kinds of models. So that's what our entire education is basically aimed at, creating these models, especially if you're a scientist uh, or an engineer or a programmer. Programmers basically make models all day long. That's what they do. Um, so, and given this background, is given that this is how we, as scientists, solve everything, uh, it's not surprising that in the 1950s, uh, when we started working with AI, we started modeling the world. We started modeling uh, how the world works, and we tried to basically create behaviors and uh, uh, imitate the human behaviors, if you will, with, with the programs. And um, that was the only thing we could do at the time because our computers were not powerful enough to do anything else. We had to make models because they had to run in PDP-11 with 4K of memory or something like that. Um, but unfortunately, these models, uh, uh, making these a comprehensive world model, if you will, a model that's big enough to give you general intelligence, uh, that's actually impossible. It's, well, it's uh, intractable. It's intractable. It's a more common word. Um, and uh, this was pointed out as early as 1969, um, like a decade after they started thinking about AI, by nobody less than John McCarthy and Pat Hayes. They uh, wrote something called the Frame Problem Paper. And in there, they basically explained that, explained that the world changed behind your back. And if you, uh, that model is pretty much obsolete the moment you make it because the world keeps changing. And uh, therefore, the approach to AI, where we explain to the AI, what, or to its computer, we explain what the world looks like, how the world works. This is a never-ending story. We have to continue to keep updating it. The world is also very large, very complicated, and we would have to enter all of these relations into the computer for it to, to basically be able to operate on it. And that's just not the right approach. Um, and also, whenever you pick a, mod a model, when you create a model of some aspect of reality, there's basically this immediate guarantee that the computer cannot go beyond that. The model is its entire view of the world, and it can't reason about anything else. But it can modify itself. There are plenty of computer programs that can do that. Well, uh, we tried to um, do these kinds of modifying programs and programs and machine learning and so on, and it took us quite a long time to get going on that. It, they, there was no modeling in the first AI systems to speak of. Um, it took many years before they got into machine learning at all. Um, and even early machine learning, still on small computers, was used by basically creating a model and then just learning the parameters of it. And, and that's still very limited. Uh, so the early successes that they had in this kind of, uh, in this kind of, uh, modeling effort, things like the blocks word or whatever, they are toy problems. They seem to work, but they um, they are not real AI because they only work in these limited domains. And people said, basically, they went to toy problems after McCarthy and Hayes published a paper because they couldn't see any other way out. It was obviously correct that, that the world changes behind your back. And they said, okay, we just limit ourselves to toy problems and we'll work on that. But uh, it is... Unfortunately, not at all on the path to true general artificial intelligence because the generality requires that you learn all the time. 
then how exactly could researchers simulate the brain to some extent? Because clearly we are capable of doing all of these things, and as far as we know, there's nothing magical about us, so when or how can we get a machine to act the way we do? Yeah, that's uh, that's basically what my research has been about for the past 15 years, since 2001. I was working with AI in the traditional way, and I, until I got, if you will, a crisis of faith in 2001, actually 1998, uh, when I realized that the, the current wave of AI was not going to work, and I started looking around for alternatives. And it turns out that the best way to do AI was actually, they started, that was the stuff that they started with in the 1890s, uh, and it's basically called sub-symbolic artificial intelligence or, or, or cognitive science, as it was called early on. And it's, it's, cognitive science was like increasing slowly from 1890s to 1950. Um, and lots of people did lots of cool thinking about how the brain might work or how intelligence might work. And then comes computers and then comes artificial intelligence down, down the, so, so to speak, the reductionist way where you model the world. And they started doing it in 1950. And to everybody, that sounded like the obvious win. So all the research funding went to the uh, reductionist style, the model building way of doing AI. And that's basically been taking all the funding from all of the AI since 1950 until very, very recently. Occasionally, we have some little efforts gets done, which does something else, like neural networks, for instance, are closer to cognitive science than they are to model building, model making of the world. Um, and um, But it's it's been, it's been tough to basically for the sub-symbolicists, as we call ourselves, the people working on the sub-symbolic, the brain-like thing, we we haven't been able to get the funding that we would, that everybody else has been getting from this. Uh, the easiest way to explain the difference is basically that the reductionists they model the world, whereas the the the, the holists, or if you will, the sub-symbolicists, which are the ones who work with uh, brain-like structures, they model the mind. So you have a choice of modeling the world or modeling the mind. And the world is a much, much larger thing to model. In this revolution in biology as well, initially geneticists and molecular biologists were very happy about finding single genes, but then they realized that no, these single genes usually don't mean very much in terms of human health and performance. Yes, in general, the world is a much more complex place than we would like to have it be in order to be able to treat it with scientific tools. Um, let me explain a different word here. Uh, uh, well, I started talking about reduction, um, the ability to take a rich world and reduce it to a model. Um, and it's been basically the, the way all science wants to be done. Uh, but uh, if you take the sciences and you put them on a spectrum, you end up in one end, you have basically physics, which is the most reductionist science there is. And it has a sub-discipline of of uh, computer science and, and mathematics. Those are sub basically those support all the sciences. Um, but then from physics, you have chemistry, you have biochemistry, you have biology, you move up your way up to the more soft sciences, so to speak, and you end up with psychology and ecology at the, at the other end. I think of it as the right end. Um, and um, the reductionist models, the, the models of the world that people are making, they work excellent in physics and engineering and, and so on. And once you have the models, you can think about them using mathematical and programming tools. But over on the other edge, in psychology and ecology and biology, it gets really tricky. And 
we often talk about those sciences having something called physics envy, where they are so annoyed that they can't make these nice formulas that give you these wonderful predictions that physics and engineers have at their disposal. We And they also can't make, like I said, they can't make these good predictions. And we have to be understanding of the fact that physics deals with very simple stuff. Basically, physics is for simple problems. And when you get to biology and onward, all the problems are complicated because you're dealing with life. And life is this mess of interacting stuff. Um, I have taken up, picked up a term that, that somebody used a long time ago uh, called bizarre systems, uh, which is basically systems that resist modeling. They are so complicated that they can't be modeled and they typically suffer from a number of problems. Uh, they are chaotic, so you can't predict them long term. You don't know what's going to happen in them. They are irreducible, which means you can't take them apart. If you try to take them apart, the system stops working. I mean, you can take, um, 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 you have stuff that, uh, for instance, interacts with this environment seriously, and that becomes an irreducible problem. You take a rabbit out of nature and put it in the lab, uh, it behaves very differently. Blood in the test tube behaves very differently than blood in circulation, etc., etc. So you can't really, really cut the environment off because then your model is useless. You have emergent effects, like you have populations of things and they interact with each other and, and, and you can't predict those either. But almost most important is that the world is so complicated that we don't have um, the ability to have good input data. The physics and, and, and so on, mathematics, all of these hard sciences, they require perfect and correct input data. And in the real world, these are not almost never available. They are almost never available. Um, and what you have is data that is incomplete, ambiguous, outright misleading. There's lies everywhere, uh, especially in human interactions. We don't have the correct input data, and therefore, with the garbage in, garbage out principle, as programmers talk about, you can't use logic because logic requires this perfect input data. It can't even get started unless you have the correct input data, which means that logical systems are basically useless for dealing with the real world. Now, artificial intelligence could be argued is exactly the ability to deal with the real world the way humans do. do. And it's a surprise to many that logic is useless for this purpose. Um, I like to split the world into, I mean, one way to view this is to say that to a lot of people, especially scientists, the world splits into two parts, which is the scientific and the unscientific. And the unscientific is just useless. We can completely ignore that. But in reality, there's a big chunk between those two, which is what I call the mundane. That's our everyday life. And in the mundane, surprisingly enough, science doesn't work because it's the entirety of the world is in the mundane domain. And you have to make models before you can even talk, start talking about science. You have to limit yourself to very small parts. Looking at the rich reality and figuring out the model, the process of reduction, as I call it, is difficult. It requires what I call understanding. You have to understand the world in order to know what matters and what doesn't. And only after you understand a problem domain completely or well enough can you make these models and test them and see if they, you can make scientific progress in that. And um, But in basically humans who live in the world they get by without using science. They just live in the world, they understand the entire world, um, and they understand complex things like language uh, without doing science, without doing reduction. You can make breakfast without using logic, and so on. How do we do this? Why, why is, so do a process theory 
basically talks about understanding and reasoning and shows that understanding is what we use 99.99 plus percent of the time and very rarely do we need the reasoning part. And this is now becomes obvious why AI hasn't worked so far because we've been working on the wrong 0.0001% of the problem. How does one go about constructing something that would function like the subconscious mind? Well, there's basically two strategies for that. The most obvious one is that you try to figure out how the brain does it. And it's called a neuroscience-inspired model of the brain. And you create things like neurons and, and synapses and whatever. And you try to create a system that you expect works like the brain does. And if we have, for instance, the Blue Brain Project in Europe under Markram and other things like that that are, are doing this. But neuroscience has this problem that our resolution, for instance, in MRI is way too low. We can't even, we cannot identify in the brain chunks that are smaller than millions of neurons. They go to like cubic millimeters or cubic, several cubic millimeters, and there's millions of neurons in that chunk. So you, you can't pay the, we can't observe individual neurons today. And even if we could, it would be very complicated to figure out what they do. So um, I have a, a, a I, use, I usually say in my talks that uh, the story of what the brain needs to do is much shorter than the story of what the brain does. The brain has evolved, and as such, it is a, uh, it has stuff that really doesn't make sense, but it evolved that way. And if the alternative to this neuroscience-based approach is to use epistemology, basically start looking at questions like, what is it possible to know? How is it possible to learn anything? And so on. And you try to build your model of intelligence based on this epistemological basis instead of basing it on neuroscience basis. And that's what I've been doing since uh, for these 50 years. Um, and it's not that difficult to figure out these uh, uh, epistemological foundations. And there are some interesting surprises when you start doing that. Um, and uh, so, in essence, what we're doing is we are um, trying to create learning machines, machines that can learn from their input using very primitive operations, uh, which we call model-free methods. We bundle up a bunch of these model-free methods and let these model-free methods build their own models. This is, I'm, I'm sorry that the term model-free method is a little bit misleading because um, when you're dealing with computers, you have to make models. But again, we're modeling the mind, not modeling the world. And as long as you can keep that in a separation clear in your mind as you're programming, then you can, then you can basically uh, get to the right kind of system. When I think about, a, about that term, modeling, the mind rather than modeling the world. It is an extremely profound distinction. I don't have nearly as much experience programming as you do, but when I think about it, yes, typically it's the world I'm thinking about, uh -huh. not the other way around. Uh -huh. Exactly. And um, But once you have something that you have, once you create a good enough model of the mind, you can test it in various ways. You can pick a problem domain such as vision or understanding language, which is my favorite, or hearing or whatever or robotic locomotion, robotic pathfinding, even video games and so on. Whatever your domain is, you can basically create a system that learns um, and from its environment as it goes. A newborn child is, is basically, it doesn't have enough models to even understand what's in this visual field. There's a term called buzzing and blooming, which explains the way children 
and under, uh, experience training, do they understand what shapes and colors mean and they can start discerning faces and other things. And basically nature is economical with, with its, its modeling. I mean, we have very few instincts, very few things that we know come from our DNA. We are basically born pretty much like blank slates. I mean, most of these instincts are, are, uh, are, are almost silly today. I mean, we get them from other primates. I have the saying that instincts are so expensive to create that it takes more than one species. I mean, one of the more famous instincts we have is that if you throw a newborn child into water, they know how to swim. Or if you hold out the finger and the newborn child grips the finger with their hand, they can they can basically hold on to the finger with full force and they won't fall down. And that's obviously very useful for, for like primates living in, in trees and so on. Um, so the instincts we have are very few. The step above that is everything we learn in a subconscious intu intuition-based manner. Our intuitions are basically 99.99 plus percent of what we know. And we all learn them from our birth and onward. That includes language, that includes walking. I and mean, walking and talking we learn in the first year and a half. Um, and we're doing it the same way. We're basically doing it by observing. We observe adults speaking to each other and that's how we pick up language. We see them walk, we try to walk ourselves and that's how we learn how to walk and it's important to notice that we learn from our mistakes. Some people claim we only learn from our mistakes. There's very few exceptions. In school we try to teach children how to do things right, um, the students how to do things right, but for instance in sports like learning to ski, that doesn't work. I mean you can tell people, you can tell a skiing student how to hold their shoulders, how to hold their skis and what posture they have and they get out on the slope and they think they're doing exactly what the teacher said and they are completely stiff and they fall over and the ski teacher tears their hair out and says, no, 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 you're thinking too much. And the truth of, of, of skiing is basically that's just a starting point. What they teach you in the, in the videos in ski school is just a starting point. You have to be out there, you have to fall over, you have to learn to balance, you have to understand how the skis and the, and, and poles etc. affect your, your, your position and posture and, and balance. And only by making enough mistakes do you learn this. This is true for Almost everything we do, everything we learn intuitively, we learn from our mistakes. So the AI people, they think mistakes are bad. In science and math, mistakes are bad. So they build their AIs to be perfect, and therefore they don't learn from their mistakes. And again, we have this reductionist holistic split where um, the old reductionist scientific way doesn't work because humans are not scientific. We learn from our mistakes and we make lots of them. What consequences are there of this? What, what, what can we think, if, if we understand dual process theory, can we say anything about the kind of intelligences we're going to have if we build an AI using model-free methods, if you will, holistically using intuition rather than uh, reasoning? And the first one is, of course, that we make mistakes. And this is not a surprise because you can look at the frame problem statement basically says the world changes behind your back. Therefore, all intelligent agents must be fallible. They make mistakes because they have no choice. The world changes behind your back. So everything we do with our brains, with our minds, is best effort given the available information. And that's like not good enough for the people who want to have a, a, a perfect, they want to build what's, what I call a, uh, a um, infallible, omniscient, superhuman, godlike artificial intelligence. These are totally impossible uh, because the world changes. Um, and and um, this infallibility is so ingrained in this AI discussion that I think that it is, an, if you will, a, a prerequisite for things like the singularity. 
if if uh, you have to have you basically have to have a perfect AI in order to improve in, in order for it to be able to improve itself without limit because if it made mistakes when improving itself it would just make different kinds of mistakes and that's the situation we have uh, uh, so I claim that basically that that this um, recursive self-improvement is it has limits you can only go so far and, t and, and the bugs you have in the code etc uh, are going to uh, introduce more bugs which is well known in programming and also even if you had a perfect understanding engine a perfect intuition based AI at the bottom which is the only kind of AI that really works it would still be subject to the errors uh, caused by the world changing uh, so there's no way around the frame problem. There's no way around making mistakes, and this may limit the power of intelligence. So people who talk about superhuman AI are probably incorrect. The, the, the playing field between AIs and humans is probably much more level than people believe, than those people believe, because um, it's mostly the, the, the level is there because the world changes behind our back, and uh, it puts a limit to the ability, for instance, to to reason, the ability to make predictions, all of these things, immediately to make the right decisions. So, if AIs are all fallible, um, I don't think unfriendly artificial intelligence really is a problem. If ever we had a Skynet kind of AI that tries to take over, we wait until it makes a mistake and we pull a plug on it. And uh, and that's uh, and I guess I'm in the minority of people. Uh, that believe that, or at least in the AI community, believe that that's, that's obviously true. Um, but I'm going to be talking about that a lot more in the next year or so. I'm, I'm thinking about a couple of ways to strengthen the argument to, to make this more plausible. Well, every culture needs its boogeyman, or in this case, boogie programs. So I think it's a popular misconception. It actually uh, comes from in my opinion, um, the, the efforts in the AI community are, in some sense, really strange if you approach it from the outside. There is a lot of talk about, um, well, I've heard people in the AI community say, if the AI isn't going to be superhuman, why bother? And that to me is completely unfathomable because even a, I don't know, a cow level, I call it cattle level intelligence, even a cattle level intelligence would be worth a trillion dollars. If you have something about as smart as a cow that understood human language, understood English, we, I could make a trillion dollars. Uh, I could outcompete Google in, 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 in a couple of years because they, if they didn't have it and I had something understood language, I could answer. I mean, you just answer the, uh, ask the computer a question, it answers with an answer in plain English because it understands language, it understands everything is read. It would be a very different thing than the reductionist style of stuff that we're doing today, including systems like most of Google. Um, it has struck me as strange that so many people, even very educated people like Elon Musk, consider this an imminent danger. Ah, yes. Um, the direction I was going with this. So, the AI community, they are actually, they want, they insist on this superhuman intelligence, and somebody else described it as that these people, well, reductionists are often atheists, and not having a super higher power to rely on, they feel like they 
are uncomfortable with the situation. And what they're basically trying to do, they think of AI as daddy coming home and solving all their problems. And, and that is, uh, uh, they are reluctant to give up on the superhuman AI angle because then they would basically lose their God, if you will. Uh, this is just my interpretation of it. I'm also an atheist, but I don't have a problem with the world being a messy place and I don't have a problem with superhuman AI never happening. Uh, if we had regular kind of intuition-based AI, which is, I now think of that as a regular kind of AI because it's the only possible kind. If we had intuition-based AI, we could have it help us out in small ways like humans, but incessant humans, if you will, tireless humans. For instance, if I had a machine that had cow-level intelligence that could understand language, I could have a million copies of it classify web pages for me and tell me which web pages are uh, are good, which ones are spam, which ones talk about sailboats, which ones talk about horses, which one contain new information, which one contains lies, and so on. And I could have it basically scour the web and find all the good information and put it together. And uh, that would be something we don't have today. And um, so... Uh, you must have met some very intelligent cows in your time. Well, a cow knows a lot of stuff about how to be a cow. And if it didn't have to worry about how to find food and how to make new cows and all of these little details that go with cowness, if it could use all of its brain for English, I mean, our language center is just a tiny part of our brain. So maybe you get by for learning English. Maybe you could get by with a couple of teaspoons of brain matter. Um, for instance, there was this parrot named Alex who understood, I forget, 100 words or something like that. It could uh, know all the colors, or several colors and so on. And you could show it a tray with stuff and you could ask it, how many red objects? And it would tilt his head and say four. Uh, and that's uh, uh, basically a language level understanding uh, in an animal with a brain the size of a walnut or a uh, hazelnut or something like that. And it still understood what to do, all the parrot-like stuff. So clearly, language understanding, for instance, is a much lower bar than we think it is because we have been approaching it with a model-based method. We use things like grammars and lists of words and dictionaries to do our language understanding when what we should have been doing is create this holistic um, brain-like, if you will, or, or mind model that we then feed language until it understands it. Uh, we, we computed it, uh, I mean, the number of words that a child hears and has to, can learn from in the first three years of life is limited to some, I don't know, some hundreds of thousands. And you could feed that into, a, by reading a text, for instance, you could feed that into a computer in less than a week. So we, we have hopes that we can teach a computer language from bottom up, from a blank slate, incrementally by just feeding in text, if we had the right kind of learning machine. And that's basically the, the kind of research I've been pursuing. So is it more difficult for a machine to generate grammatical sentences or to understand them? Understanding comes first. Once you understand, there is a trick that you can use to generate stuff. And at the moment, I'm not willing to share that. Uh, but uh, yes, we can basically, you can generate language if you understand it. So language understanding could be a pretty low bar and it would already be amazing because, I mean, if you could understand language the way humans understand language, it would mean understanding it uh, uh, in context, um, understanding it based on the experience of the language you've had it. And if you had a general machine for, for learning that was capable of learning English by feeding in the English text, and it is obvious that it could also learn French, it could learn Japanese, it could learn any language on the planet, it could learn two or three at a time and maybe you translate between them. You could, once you can translate between languages, you can have one of the languages be a phoneme stream, 
uh, from a microphone and now you could understand human speech. And, and so all of these problems, they fall out very naturally once you have an understanding machine that understands something at the level of language. You can use it for all of these problems. It turns out you can also use it for understanding DNA. You can use it for understanding vision. You can understand it, and like I said, sound in general, not only speaking, speech and so on. All of these problems, they're very, very similar. Once you have a generalized learning machine, an understanding machine, as I call it, I don't call my machines artificial intelligence because it's tainted with this reductionist stuff that's been going on for 60 years. I call them understanding machines basically to emphasize that they are intuitive understanding-based machines. They can be used everywhere. They can do vision. Um, and they can do robotic locomotion. We could have graceful robots like ballet dancers. Uh, we could put them in spaceships and send them to Mars and have them terraform Mars for us before we get there. And they could handle most of the situations they encounter if we train them enough on, on, on Earth on similar things and give them basically astronaut training. They could even become, I mean, they start out as these holistic understanding machines. If we wanted them to be scientists, we can send them to MIT and they can become good reductionists. So this is not an issue. You have to start at, at the holistic understanding thing and then you can layer whatever you want on top of that. And you can take the machine out of the system and make it like a module and put it some front and some stuff before and after, like customization modules to hook it up to reality in some way. And you could have intelligence, a learning, understanding machine, almost any context where we want to use any kind of technology today. And I, one of my favorite applications, in fact, what I think of as the main target of my research companies, um, product development, if you will, is that once we have an understanding machine, we will put it in something like a cell phone-like device or preferably even in like one of those little Bluetooth headsets that you have seen. And you talk to it all day and it talks back. It's exactly like in the movie Her. And, and you basically, you put it on in the morning, you talk to it all day, and, and it's called a confidant because you have no secrets from it. You talk to it, it talks back, it has a network connection to the internet, it knows where it is, um, and, you, uh, and it talks to other confidants. And it will change basically everything we do. First of all, it will raise the effective intelligence level of everybody on the planet by 10, 20 points because they would continuously have access to this machine. It would tell you what you need to know before you know how to ask. Um, and if you have a problem of any kind, is a problem that is solving, you will ask the confidant. And the confidant, if it knows the answer, it will tell you. Otherwise, it does a web search. If that doesn't turn up anything, it will ask other confidants. If they, nobody knows there, somebody says, I will ask my human. And the problem is escalated to human. The human might give you some good advice, and the answer comes back to you. And humans tie together with a network of confidants that all understand, what they all have many, many friends with many, many skills. Um, is of how I see future of the world going towards. And I also think that that's basically what, what we call work. It's going to be like basically talking to your confidant all day. Uh, you go fishing with your friends and, 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 and your confidant pipes up and said, maybe you're an accountant. The conference says, remember the thing we did for that company a year ago? Didn't go so well. Yeah, we should have done that. Okay, I have a similar problem. Let me figure it out. And so the end of the month, you get another check in the mail because you helped with this. And, and, and so that's how I see work. Uh, moving towards at least all the white color work and all the blue color work is going to be robots. So anyhow, it's a very different world. Understanding is pretty much what we, what most of the people get paid for. If you're a, a if you're a, an engineer, a scientist, a washing machine repairman, whatever you're doing, understanding what you're doing is what you get paid for. Reduction is what we get paid for. Uh, and having machines capable of autonomous reduction, these understanding machines is basically where intelligence is going. 
artificial intelligence school. Excellent. Well, it sounds like a very nice world. Much better than the doom and gloom that some people have been around since the dawn of time. No need well, to pay them any mind. Uh, it's uh, um, it's basically it's, they are misguided simply by being good scientists because artificial intelligence is this strange situation. We are not trying to create something scientific. We're trying to create a scientist. Again, uh, uh, we're trying to create something that's capable of doing what we're doing when we're doing reduction. And, and the trick is that when you're trying to create something that does reduction, you cannot use reduction. We, you don't have it yet. At the level that you're dealing with your sensory input, um, reduction is not available. And in layers above that, you're creating all of these concepts and abstractions based on something that could be as easy as pattern matching. And um, at those levels, you can't use models of anything except models of the mind, which is what you have in, in AIs and, and so on. So they, these models of the mind they imp are implemented using what I call model-free methods, and I have identified like a dozen of them. That's kind of the point of having what's called a general AI, is that you cannot have models in it. If you have models, you're locked into those models and can't do anything else. If you're model-free, now you're free to learn anything you want. And, and that is, uh, you model free in the problem domain. You're not model, you have model of mind, but you don't have model of the world. The model of the world is something the machine learns on its own by experience from its sensor input over time. And uh, that's basically where we want to go. But with something like grammar, for instance, when a human being has a built-in structure that allows it to acquire language, so with a machine, you have these general rules, and then it takes it in and it sorts them out, like well, a human being. The built-in grammar you know, of the brain is a very common misconception. Mm. Um, uh, the uh, this comes from Chomsky's uh, uh, innate grammar theories, mm -hmm. and I don't believe in that, and I don't think Chomsky himself believed it anymore either. Mm. Uh, uh, basically, if you have a generalized learning machine that can look around in the world and learn, I mean, things in your visual field. That's a much harder problem. Language is a trivial problem compared to being able to understand the, the vision. So um, uh, I believe that, that brains are capable of learning any kind of uh, uh, language they want without any special structures. We don't have to put in instincts for grammar and stuff. And we are using grammars in school. I mean, if you learn French, for instance, you would learn French verb conjugation, you would learn French grammar or whatever. But before you're ordering your uh, coffee and baguette sitting in a restaurant in Paris, if you're fluent, you will have forgotten all of those grammars. You don't use them. You just use them as a reductionist crutch, but they get replaced very quickly uh, in the process with basically uh, intuition-based language understanding and intuition-based language generation. We have to understand the distinction between the reduction structure used for learning and, and actual language understanding. You would have no time to think about grammars and conjugations as you're speaking a language that you're fluent in. And, and that's, again, the same distance, same difference as in skiing. You don't have time to reason about how to keep your balance because it has to, be ha it has to happen subconsciously and in parallel and instantaneously, like I said, thinking fast. You have to use intuition to ski. You have to use intuition to understand and, and generate French. So grammars are something we discard as soon as we can, and it's not part of our everyday language understanding. That's just a misconception. 
Right, but certainly human beings compared to other animals have something, a language instinct. For lack nope. of, you would not say that. It's, I will not say that. <laughs> so it's, it just stems from general broad differences in our brains. Well, uh, animals can learn a lot of language. I mean, uh, I, I had a friend who had a dog mm -hmm. um, who uh, could hear the word ball spoken in mid-sentence mm -hmm. uh, because he liked playing with balls. Whenever he said ball, he would run away and get a ball and come back and expect you to throw it. So if you put ball in the middle of a sentence like I just did, the dog would realize that and, 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 and come back. And my friends started using euphemisms when they were speaking about balls, things like uh -huh. throwable object or whatever. And it took typically a month for the dog to figure out that there was a euphemism. And then you say throwable object and he would go get, uh, get the ball anyway. But they, they can definitely get to some level of language understanding. And as I said, vision is harder than, than language. So anybody who, any animal that can use vision is already ahead of the curve for that one. Hmm. Well, it will be interesting if and when I have some linguists on the show to compare notes. Mm -hmm. Well, lingu linguists come in linguists come in descriptive and prescriptive flavors, and uh, uh, hopefully, people with background in neuroscience as well. So. Well, uh, yes. Well, it's uh, yeah. I don't really want to go there. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't want to make enemies. I have linguist friends, uh, but uh, uh, I think a, a linguist uh, linguistic analysis of language is basically very, very rarely useful. Um, we have we have grammar police and other things um, because we have agreed on conventions about how to most clearly express something, and uh, sticking to that is certainly a good idea, but. Um, uh, it's not how the brain works. It's not how the brain works. Sure. Consider this, your first language. You learned English as a whatever language you learned as a child. Nobody gave you grammars, nobody gave you word lists, nobody gave you dictionaries. You picked up language on, without any of those crutches. So this basically speaks against us having models, if you will, of language of that kind. We just, we just under, we pick it up from scratch by just seeing many, many, many patterns of it. And that's how we understand anything at all. I mean, we, we don't reason about that load of stuff. We have to use something faster, like pattern matching, which is very fast. So this reminds me a little bit of Jeff Hawkins' book about mm -hmm. general patterns and these useful algorithms that can do any number of wonderful things. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, Hawkins is uh, definitely one of the people on the subconscious, sorry, on the, uh, yes, on the uh, sub-symbolic end of, of AI. If you wanted to make an inventory of the current AI companies, I mean, Hawkins and Numenta is sub-symbolic, as, uh, um, as is Jeff Hinton at uh, uh, Google, um, as is mostly Andrew Ng from Stanford, um, and uh, a few others. And almost everybody else is still working on the reductionist thing. Typically, I mean, the poster boy for reductionism is the Psych Project under Doug Lynette. Um, and also, then we have people that are somewhere in the middle. And here is where Numenta kind of gets interesting, because if you want to get um, down to a little bit more technical on this, there's two ways to think about these brain-like structures. And there's, they're called the West Pole and the East Pole approach. Um, and this, I think this term was coined by Bennett or somebody like that, but basically the people on the East Coast, traditionally, not everybody, it's not a complete geographical separation, but MIT and CMU, for instance, they had lots of people who liked these reductionist model-based things. So they built, even if they would do some sub-symbolic stuff, even if they do neural network stuff, they like to 
do it as more strict models, whereas the people on the West Coast are more happy-go-lucky. They start from blank slates and then they grow stuff and they don't basically care how things connect to each other as long as it works. Um, and, and so the East Polars are more regular and the West Polars are uh, let the brain figure it out on its own or let the system figure it out. And Numenta started out with a very much like an East Pole pro uh, approach. Um, this was Dilip George's uh, uh, original work, and it was based on the neuroscience work that, that uh, uh, Hawkins had done at the Red Bull Sciences Institute. But it was this hierarchical temporal memory, which has this very rigid structure, and all you can do is tweak the numbers, the weights, if you will, in the network. And uh, that lasted maybe a decade and or slightly less than that. And then um, uh, Dilip George uh, left Numenta and, and, and started uh, uh, Vicarious. And also Ray Kurzweil had been listening to Dilip George's theories and, and basically his approach at Google, as I understand it, I don't know, I'm an outsider to Google nowadays, I haven't been there for many years, um, is to use similar methods, basically predefine the, the structure of the, uh, the West Polar, such as myself. So, I mean, I have a sign on my door that says, welcome to the West Pole, because I think of myself as the most West Polish, uh, if you will, um, uh, effort in this direction. Uh, we basically start with a blank slate and, and let stuff just grow. Um, and it becomes a much messier structure, but it reflects in some sense um, the task at hand. Um, we also are very much um, distributed representation. And, and here is, uh, which means that there is not a single neuron for a grandmother, the grandmotherness, if you will, uh, the concept of grandmother is split along many, hundred, many hundreds or thousands of neurons. You have, um, you think of the grandmother as the woman living next door with two grandkids or the grandmother in red riding hood. They have some things in common, but not very much. And the concept of grandmother is very, very fluid, if you will. And in, in, in the East Polar systems, I think of it more likely, it's not true for everybody, more likely that you would have a grandmother neuron that basically define grandmother. You have both of these strategies, the East Pole and West Pole strategy, and what Numenta did, as I understand it, was after Dilip George left, um, uh, uh, the, um, they switched over to a more West Pole approach. They, they got rid of some of their models. So what uh, was described in Hawkins' book may not be even close to what they're doing today. Uh, uh, so they, they changed strategies. They went, they went more, more West, if you will. And I think that's the correct direction to go in because these predefined structures, yes, we have some kind of layering in the brain, for instance, it may not be important. Um, it evolved that way. Some people will bet on that being important. Some, such as myself, say, well, the story, the story about the brain needs to do is much shorter than the story about the brain does. We can do it slightly simpler as long as we see an epistemological reason for doing certain things a certain way, we can do it that way. And quite likely we make tests and if the tests turned out positive, then we continue down that path.